I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Welcome to the show, Scott. Oh, thanks for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. You're joining us all the way from uh, New York, New York, is that right? That's correct. Perfect, perfect. Um, well, before we get into it, I wanted to obviously talk to you about today about your new book, but before that, you successfully predicted on a, the Rico Decode podcast recently that Amazon would buy Whole Foods, and I was keen to understand the, uh, the thought process that underpinned this prediction. So it just made a lot of sense. Uh, Amazon is currently the strategy of Amazon is to try and create this recurring revenue relationship with 62% of American households called Prime, where they pay 99 bucks a year in exchange for all sorts of services. And it's clear to me that this is the focus of their strategy. And the way to create more intensity around those 62% of households is to offer them products that they need more frequently than the current two or three times a week, or excuse me, a month that they currently purchase stuff from Whole Foods. If you look at Amazon's or Whole Foods warehouse uh, store network, Amazon could have justified the $14 billion acquisition just by closing the stores down and using them as flexible warehouses located in the most affluent uh, neighborhoods in the world. And then you roll in the relationships they have with long-tail food brands that is the fastest-growing part of grocery. It just made perfect sense. So now Amazon has access to the wealthiest refrigerators in the U.S. and is probably going to take average spending up dramatically and increase the fluidity of the interface between prime households uh, and Amazon. So basically, overnight, they fast-forwarded 10 years in their strategy mm. around uh, creating intensity across those households. Yeah, and I remember reading uh, on social media post the acquisition that many pundits were saying, well, they actually added more to their market cap than the cost of the acquisition um, because the, the markets basically responded in a very favorable way to that acquisition. Yeah, so it's Amazon's in a unique position right now being able to shop on someone else's credit card. So the yeah. day they announced the acquisition, their market cap went up almost by the entire amount of the acquisition, mm. whereas the market capitalization of the competitors in the grocery space declined by probably more than the uh, amount of the acquisition. So Amazon can now go acquire companies and have other people pay for it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a fascinating time. So um, it seems, Scott, that there's always four, whether we're talking about the big four accounting firms, the NCAA Final Four. In my case, I'm a metal fan, so the big four of thrash metal. But today's biggest tech companies, we've got Amazon, have we been as we've been alluding to, Apple, Facebook, and Google. And you explore these companies in your new book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, which since its release last month has gone on to become a New York Times bestseller. So congratulations, Scott. Oh, thanks very much. Um, so what inspired the book? So uh, just on a practical level, I'm, I'm an academic, and it was time for me to write a book. And I'm fascinated by these four companies. I've studied them for a long time. And always thought there was uh, a, a lot of insight to be gleaned from really taking a hard look at their history and what they've been able to do to attract so much capital and so much consumer adoption. Mm. And also had a sense for that. I don't think people really understand just how powerful and influential they've become. Yeah. We all know they're successful. We all know they do a great job with their products. But I would argue these four firms have amassed more influence than any entities on earth right now, maybe with the exception of the U.S. government and 
the Chinese government. So I was excited to kind of write about that. Yeah, I know. And in the um, blurb to the book, you argue that just about everyone thinks they know how these companies got to where they are, um, and just about everyone is wrong. So can you elaborate on that, Scott? Well, I think these firms directly hit on a specific instinct. So Google is what I would call our modern man god, and that is we, three billion times a day, post a query or, or shoot a query into the universe asking for answers to the, our most difficult questions. And there's this divine intervention in the ether. We don't know how it works, and it sends back an answer we trust more than anyone else in the world. There are things you ask Google you would never dream of asking a priest, a rabbi, a scholar, a wife, a job, a mentor. So I think Google kind of fills the void of a modern society where our questions continue to outpace our ability to answer them, and it's filled this void of a, su- a need for a super being. Facebook taps into our need to love. The strongest indicator of whether you'll make it to 100 years of age is how many people in, in your life do you love. So it is an instinctive need. And Facebook offers this offers the ability to create a lot of empathy with people, mostly through photos and images, that extends our ability to love, if you will, or have connections and catalyze and reinforce connections and relationships with people. Amazon is our consumptive gut. We need nutrients. More for less has been typically the strategy that creates the most valuable company in the world, whether it's Walmart, it's the strategy of China, and now it's the strategy of Amazon. They probably do a better job with that than anybody else because we've been trained that to always err on the side of too much versus too little, which often results in starvation. And then finally, Apple speaks to our reproductive instincts. Apple phone says to people that you're part of the innovation class, you have disposable income, you likely live in a city, you appreciate artisanship, and you would make a better mate because you have better genes. So I think these companies have disarticulated who we are as humans and and reassembled us in the form of for-profit companies, and as a result, have created more shareholder value or combined market capitalization greater than the GDP of India by, again, tapping into very basic instincts. Just a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from great venture returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Yeah, and uh, what, what you mentioned there about Google um, and the fact that we'll, we will tell it things that we wouldn't tell our spouse, our kids, um, our significant others, um, echoes uh, the thoughts of one of my former guest, Seth Stevens Davidovich, who wrote a book called Everybody Lies, um, where he talked about the profound consequences that has for us in terms of collecting that data that normally um, people wouldn't share with anybody. Um, and it does uncover a lot of hidden insights about how we think and feel um, online when you actually go and look at that data. And Seth was able to predict a number of outcomes, whether it was the US presidential election. Um, he looked at profiles of racism across different parts of the United States. And oftentimes, it uncovered things that perhaps weren't so widely held beliefs, but the data suggested otherwise. Yeah, so it's ironic. I don't know if you know this, but I interviewed Seth about two weeks ago at an event. I just posted a 30-minute video interview with him on our our site. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And some of his 
Google is now, I mean, Google really is kind of the ultimate looking glass into people's, not only what people are say they're going to do, but their real intentions. Mm. And as you referenced, some of the data was really fascinating. In the U.S., people, I think, stereotyped the southern part of our country as being more racist, but he found more racist search terms being used in certain parts of the Northeast. Mm. But Google has, you know, a pretty amazing and slightly frightening insight. You know, Google knows what diseases you have, what diseases you're worried about exposing yourself to. If you're thinking of getting divorced or getting married, if you're thinking about finding a new job, your fetishes, uh, Google, imagine your name and your face above every Google query you've made and you'll start to think, wow, this could get pretty scary pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I think Seth was proposing something like a Google um, search engine that actually advises you or warns you that, hey, based on your last X number of searches, you could be at risk of this disease and perhaps you need to be consulting a, a doctor or, or whatnot um, because it, you will be able to track, say, symptoms leading up to a particular sort of outcome um, over that period of time, which is quite interesting. But on, on Google, I mean, you mentioned earlier that people probably don't realize just how much power these organizations have obtained over the last 15 or so years. Um, and in Tim Harford's book, uh, 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, he makes reference to Google and how their power lies in the data that they've consumed. You know, the best ways to improve the usefulness of search results is effectively to analyze which links were ultimately clicked by which people um, who previously performed the same search and so on. And Google has far more of that data than anyone else. And that suggests that the company may continue to shape our access to knowledge for generations to come. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do these companies have a level of power now that is almost second to none to the, in, the, in the respect that it's very hard for a second entrant to come in and succeed. Yeah, so it, it's it's hard to imagine that with 90% share of search, which now by dollar volume is bigger than the entire advertising market of any nation except the U.S., that there might be someone to unseat Google. But having said that, Amazon is now the leader in market in, in a product search. And about the time that academics or pundits start saying a company is unassailable is usually about the time that it goes into structural decline, whether it's Walmart or IBM or IBM. <laughs> so uh, acknowledging that, uh, that, that this, the people like me have said this before and they've been wrong, it's hard for me to imagine at this point these companies, the two things standing in the way of these companies total sort of what you call world domination of business is one, each other and two, regulation. So yeah. they are going after each other. I think there's a certain level of safety and hatred and that them competing with each other is probably a good thing. But you know, th there's some are more vulnerable than others, but it's just hard to see how these companies don't continue their kind of march around global domination. Yeah, and on uh, regulation, um, I mean, Google recently fined about three and a half billion euros for antitrust breaches uh, in Europe. The state of Missouri recently launched an investigation into whether Google mishandled private customer data and manipulated search results to favor its own products. Um, do we see the tide turning on 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 these? companies in terms of uh, their political uh, fortunes? Yeah, there's um, there's definitely the warmest turn. Uh, there's a certain level of public sentiment that's growing against them, and at a minimum, there's a lot more government inquiry into their actions, and it's been a series of, of aggregating or cumulative effect, uh, cultural problems at Uber, some of the fines coming out of Europe, and then most recently, I think the straw that sort of broke the camel's back are really turn public sentiment was the weaponization of Facebook and Google and Twitter by the intelligence arm of the Russian government. And that kind of 
gave people not only a sense for how scary the, the notion that these platforms can be weaponized is, but also I think people were disappointed in the response from these companies. I think, especially from Facebook, they, they sort of threw out a series of half measures and kind of half denials. And in a crisis, it's typically not the crisis that does the damage to the company. It's the response to the crisis. And in this case, it was underwhelming. So no doubt about it, the worm has turned. There's now open talk of limited but still regulation here in the U.S. So I think it was called the Fair Advertising Act, where they want them to disclose who's uh, making any political ad, which is something that television stations here in the U.S. already have to do. But we're having an important discussion for the first time around some of the downsides of these companies. Yeah, and I feel like the uh, U.S. presidential election of 2016 definitely um, started the conversation, uh, particularly when people were talking about our online echo chambers and how if I was on a supporter of the left, all I would see is left-leaning updates, and therefore that would just solidify my um, my belief system. And conversely, if I was on the right, same sort of thing. Um, and whether that was conscious or otherwise, like you said, the crisis ensued, but it was a response to that crisis. However, it seems that, and this is something that you talk about in your book, the stock market nonetheless forgives these organizations. Whether it's the, uh, the presidential election campaign supposedly being influenced, whether it's um, you know, Tesla's product recalls um, and, say, missing production targets, um, and Amazon's billions of dollars of failures, as Jeff Bezos likes to put it. But despite all of that, the share prices still keep surging forward. Um, Amazon's has gone up by about 50% in the past 12 months. Tesla, too, despite those product recalls and production targets being missed, I know they're not one of the big four, but similarly, the, the market does still respond by more or less forgiving them. And their share price in the past 12 months has gone up by 50%, too. So why is the stock market so forgiving to such organizations? The bottom line is they're just, they continue to perform or even exceed sometimes expectations in their juggernauts, both economically and just competitively. But they get sort of a, a chaser effect because they're very likable and they've become somewhat staples. And that is the market seems overvalued. You don't know what to do. It's complicated to manage your investment portfolio. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a, a default or a reflex reaction is just to buy these company stocks. And they're also outstanding in managing their own brands, managing storytelling, managing yeah. kind of the likability of the companies. And, you know, there's just so many confluence of factors. Your teenager uses it, which seems to be the litmus test for whether a company is going to be successful or not. We have a society that I would say no longer worships at the altar of kindness or character, but it's sort of this gross idolatry of innovators. And whoever is seen as sort of the biggest innovator of the age gets, um, you know, sort of a disproportionate amount of financial capital. Amazon has been an outstanding storyteller since 1997. Jeff Bezos' initial letter to investors saying they were going to focus on these three truisms of consumer value that are non-perishable, value selection, inconvenience. And it's a very compelling message. And when you combine vision with steady execution, uh, these companies have just been afforded capital at a lower cost of capital than any of their competitors, which is an incredible advantage. Amazon is able to operate a break-even, meaning they reinvest 100 cents on the dollar in the consumer experience and yet their stock continues to go up, whereas traditionally, if companies didn't begin holding on to some of that dollar and returning it to investors, their stock would be punished, making it harder for them to invest in new things. So Amazon's sort of unique that they've, that they've broken that mold. And you see it sort of snaking back into the ecosystem where now every unicorn is trying to establish leadership position, grow at all costs, 
regardless of the profitability or lack thereof. So you have companies like Uber that do $7 billion in top line, but lose 2 or $3 billion even out 10 years after they've started. That that just wouldn't have washed in the markets just even 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, and it seems as if that storytelling aspect, seeding that belief in investors that, hey, you are working for something much greater and there are massive long-term uh, prospects here as an investor – is something that differentiates companies like Amazon, like Uber, like um, Apple from the rest of the pack. I mean, recently we saw Jeff Immelt um, get ousted as the CEO of GE after 16 years. And a lot of people are saying that's just short-termism um, on behalf of uh, activist investors. Uh, I think it was Trion Capital who bought about 1.5% of the company and went on to influence other institutional investors. Um, and perhaps they can't get away with um, having that long-term view. I know they had a huge internal sort of transformation project underway at GE. They taught all the middle managers the lean startup philosophy. Um, they changed the, the, the values of, of the organization to be more customer-centric rather than inside the building. But despite all of that, their investors say, hey, your, your share price is, is pretty much where it was 20 years ago today. You're the worst performing company on the, on the Dow Jones Index this year. Um, we've got to get rid of the CEO. Whereas... Like you said, um, in Uber's case, they 10 years in, $3 billion loss. In Amazon's case, you know, while they have been recording a profit for the last couple of years, it's usually been about you know, 0.5% to 1% margins if, if, if they're lucky. But the market forgives them because they keep pushing forward and keep releasing awesome products and growing that top-line revenue. Yeah, so profits, uh, with, at least with these companies, have been replaced by vision and growth. Mm. And to a certain extent, I don't want to say they're playing unfair, but they're taking advantage of something that other companies can't. So Amazon, my understanding, is about to arrive on your shores. Mm -hmm. And Amazon will be able to offer consumers in Australia 100 cents on the dollar, meaning if you spend 100 bucks on Amazon, you're going to get $100 for the product and services. Whereas every other successful retailer in Australia will give you 70 to 90 cents back on the dollar, the consumer dollar. So consumers in Australia are going to love Amazon. The problem is other retailers are going to have a very difficult time competing because if they were to go to zero profitability, their shareholders would revolt mm. and take their share price down anywhere from 30 to 90 percent, meaning they'd be effectively cut off from new capital. So it's Amazon not only tolerates this, this zero profitability or this break even, they embrace it. And here in the U.S., they most recently started subsidizing the cost of products in the marketplace, meaning if a product was being offered for $100 on Amazon and the Amazon algorithm found it somewhere else for 92 bucks, Amazon would actually rebate the consumer $8 on behalf of the vendor because they're so comfortable. They continue to get this fanatical-like investment where the, the stock gets, keeps getting bid up. So it's very hard to compete with Amazon. The analogy I use is that at the end of World War II, the Germans had better tanks, better officers, better morale, but we, the Allies, had 38 gallons of gasoline for everyone they had, and we literally overwhelmed them with brute force. Mm. And Amazon is now the business that shows up to any sector or any country with 38 gallons of gasoline. They can literally overwhelm the retailers in Australia with brute force because if you're giving people back 100 cents on the dollar and everyone else is giving them 70 or 80 cents back on the dollar, you don't have to be better. You're just eventually going to win over consumers because they're getting a better value. And a lot of people would say, what's wrong with that? And it's a decent question because consumers benefit. 
The hard part is what happens when one company seems to have access to this infinite capital and the others don't for some reason. Yeah, that was going to be um, my next question because um, you alluded to it earlier where you said Amazon is effectively building its business with other people's money and they're one of the few companies who can get away with recording a small profit, if none at all, until they acquire this sort of world domination rather. But what happens then um, in terms of dominating a particular market, whether it's Australia, whether it's US, whether it's going into Europe, once they're the tank that rolls over the competition and then they effectively become a monopoly, what happens then? I mean, we see that now with, say, Uber in some cases, and in a very small microcosm of that, I suppose, is your surge pricing, where, hey, demand's gone up, we've got to crank up prices 2x or 3x. But what happens when, say, Amazon is the only game in town? Does that give them a position of power that perhaps is somewhat dangerous? Well, that's the fear and why antitrust steps in when a company gets too much market share. But by traditional standards, Amazon really isn't violating antitrust because in all its markets, it has somewhere between kind of 4% share and 30 or 40, which is what I think it has mm -hmm. in cloud. But in U.S. retail, it only has about 4% share. I think uh, Walmart does double the top line volume of Amazon. The other way to look at it, though, is that Amazon controls about 40 or 50% of online retail, which is, tends to be valued at a much greater multiple, meaning that if you look at the entire retail ecosystem or the value of the entire retail stock market, Amazon has garnered most or all of the gains and everyone else has suffered uh, at the hands of Amazon. And if you look at the majority of the retail growth taking place in Europe and the U.S., the majority of it is soaked up by Amazon. So the fear is that at some point, yeah, they might become so dominant that they then begin to raise prices. Uh, but it's almost as if we're just dealing with an animal we haven't dealt with before. Already, we're seeing a lot of retailers going out of business. We're seeing a lot of retailer stocks suffering. There's a general anti-Christ phenomenon where every time Amazon stock goes up, other retailers go down. Traditionally, companies trade in sympathy with one another. But people now assume that, that Amazon has become decoupled from the rest of retail. And what's bad for retail is good for Amazon. So if a big retailer announces a terrible quarter, oftentimes the same day, Amazon stock will actually go up. And when Amazon announces an amazing quarter, the rest of retail goes down. So we're seeing such a dramatic reallocation of investor capital from the rest of retail to Amazon. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because for every one thing a traditional retailer can try around innovation, Amazon can try 10 or 50 or 100, meaning that similar to a poker game, when one person at some point has so many chips, they can just begin going all in on every hand until they wipe out the other players. The question is, have we gotten to that point with Amazon? Yeah, and um, I mean, on that decoupling from retail, I guess uh, I'm reminded of a 2011 article by Mark Andreessen called Software Will Eat the World, um, which means effectively, I mean, which, which is part of the reason why Amazon is able to, say, try 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 things for every one thing that a large behemoth bricks and mortar uh, retailer is able to try. Yeah, they, they have. So just as an example, and it creates, just as here in the US, I don't know what the system is in Australia, when we first developed the concept of social security that we would provide income to seniors such that they wouldn't live in poverty, mm -hmm. the average life expectancy, I think, was the late, you know, high 50s or low 60s. Now people are living into their 80s and 90s and beyond, and we didn't anticipate this much. We didn't anticipate people living this long. So social security policy hasn't caught up with actual demographics. Mm -hmm. Same thing's happening around the big four, and that is our tax policy 
our antitrust policy isn't keeping up with what's actually happening in the market. So, for example, Walmart, since the Great Recession, has paid $64 billion in taxes, corporate income taxes. Amazon has paid $1.4. And this is despite the fact that Amazon has added the market capitalization of Walmart to its value just in the last 24 months. So what does it mean when the most successful retailer in the world is effectively paying no taxes? How do you pay for your soldiers? How do you pay for your roads, your hospitals, et cetera? And then the simple answer is the less successful retailers are going to have to pay more in tax. So we've kind of ended up with a bit of a regressive tax system where the leader gets his or her or the winner gets his or her winnings doubled. So you win the lottery and then the government shows up and says, okay, we're going to double your winnings. We just haven't kept pace. And it's not an easy question to answer because the response is, well, any other company could do the same thing and start reinvesting all of their capital, all of their profits in the consumer experience, which would be good for consumers and lower their tax rate. Mm -hmm. The problem is the markets won't put up with it for other companies. So we're, we're at a very interesting stage. What does it mean when one company, Google, has 90% plus of search in most markets? You know, it's not, we just haven't seen this sort of thing uh, or we haven't, we haven't seen it in this form before. Facebook now controls six of the top 10 apps in the world and 80% of time on the phone is spent in apps. Your phone really isn't a communications vehicle. It's a delivery mechanism for Facebook. Mm, yeah, and uh, I mean, if you look at how many other apps and platforms uh, use APIs to connect into Facebook and it almost seems as if Facebook is too big to fail because of the downstream effects of them um, going offline. Yeah, it's, uh, we're wrestling with if these companies have become too powerful and, and that's the bottom line. And what will be different about the argument, so say, let's assume the answer is yes, they become too powerful. Then the next question is, okay, well, what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. And the government intervention or some sort of regulation is largely based on if it's good for the consumer, we leave them alone. And the interesting thing here is that it's hard to argue these firms haven't been great for the consumer. Amazon, Australians are going to love Amazon. They're going to love it. Yeah. And shareholders of Amazon are probably going to do really well. Now, uh, employment, your tax base, and other retailers are probably not going to love it. And the question is, is what is always good for the consumer, always good for society? And that's kind of the, the crux of the issue we're going to wrestle with. Yeah, and on um, social safety nets and the tax base, um, I mean, one thing I wanted to explore today was that exact question. And I mean, if I look at, say, companies like, like your Ubers of the world, previously, you had your local taxi bodies um, who paid, you know, superannuation or 401ks, as you would call them, to their drivers. And whereas now they're being replaced by effectively freelance drivers or contractors who don't get any of those benefits. Yet a lot of that wealth that was once um, collected and distributed for locally, um, local taxi bodies pay taxes locally and so on. Now, companies like that, like you said, are paying very small amounts of tax. A lot of that wealth is being siphoned back to Silicon Valley where you've got this real concentration of wealth. Um, and then the flow-on effect of that down the line is, well, these people get to 60 or 70 or retirement age, whatever retirement age is in the second half of this century as um, health spans get longer and longer. What happens then? I mean, these broader sort of social implications, and I know it's not an easy question to answer, but keen to understand your thought process insofar as that playing out is concerned. So you tapped into something that's really frightening, and that is the economic titans of yesteryear, take General Motors, 200 or 250,000 people, mm -hmm. 50, 70, 80 billion dollars in market cap spread across a quarter of a million 
a quarter of a million middle class homes. Facebook has a half a trillion dollar market cap and uh, 24,000 employees. Mm-hmm. So it's great. It's great if you um, if you own the um, Ferrari dealership in Portola Valley. It's great if you own real estate in San Francisco. You know, is it good for society when our most successful companies just aren't employing that many people? The combined workforce of these companies is around six or seven hundred thousand people, which is the lower east side of Manhattan. Yet their market capitalization is the GDP of India or France. Mm. So, because we see them on the front pages of our business journals every week, we assume or every day, we assume that they employ more people than they do. They don't. And you know, job destruction at the hands of innovators is nothing new. We've just never seen anyone that's good at it before. So. It's sort of, um, we're just going to have to wrestle with some, some interesting features around job destruction and what does it mean when a company like Uber can have 12,000 employees and 70 or $80 billion in value, so kind of the value of Airbus, mm-hmm. but figure out a way that it's 2.1 million driver partners don't get to share in that equity value or benefits. Yeah, so I mean, when we talk about regulators looking out for the interests of consumers, um, you know, at a micro level... For- each individual consumer right now, perhaps, yes, their life is somewhat better, um, although we'll talk about some of the things that people are pushing back on um, shortly. But at a broader sort of macro level, um, you hit on it there with these companies that are doing much more with much less. Um, I mean, Netflix is another classic example where their market cap is 70 plus billion, but they only have 4,000 employees, whereas Blockbuster previously had about 60,000 employees and a market cap of only $5 billion. Um, and since um, the turn of the century, we've seen that productivity is just booming, yet your average median um, household income is pretty much flatlining, and that gap seems to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So perhaps um, when regulators are looking to make their decisions, whether they're deciding to clamp down or what to do about it, if they can do anything at all, perhaps it's a matter of looking at the broader picture rather than, well, are they good for consumers right now? Yeah, I think that's where we're headed, uh, uh, Steve, it's it's uh, so that's a great stat. I didn't realize uh, that that Netflix only had four thousand employees. Mm-hmm. I've been looking at four, but you're right, seventy billion and four thousand employees. You know, even a company like Intel, who you think be super efficient with its capital, I think has about one hundred and five thousand employees and about a hundred probably one hundred and fifty billion um, in market cap. So mm-hmm. the the notion that four thousand people could create $70 billion in value is extraordinary and intoxicating, and there's a lot of good things about it. The bad news is, you know, we seem to be headed towards an economy where if you're A, remarkable, and B, very lucky, there's never been a better time to be alive. But if you're just good and you're not that lucky, it's worse than it was for your parents. So it's ne- there's never been an easier time to be a billionaire. I think in the class I teach, in every class, I have someone who's going to become a billionaire either through technology or alternative investments. But it's never been harder to be a millionaire. And what I mean by that is it's, hard, it's harder, at least than it was for our parents' generation, to be a good citizen, good at what you do, go to a, an okay school, maybe not a great school. Maybe, you're, maybe you don't work 80 hours a week, you work 40. And you're good at what you do, but you're not a superstar. Yeah. Uh, the general compact with a lot of our economies was if you're a good citizen and good at what you do and play by the rules, maybe over the course of your lifetime, you can save a million bucks and retire somewhat comfortably. That's getting harder and harder. At the same time, if you're remarkable, the right certification, the right degrees, the right skills, live in the right regions and are exceptional at what you do and get lucky, you know, we, ha- we now have people in their 20s worth tens of billions of dollars, and we've never seen that before. You know, and that's important for capitalism. We need extraordinary winners. 
the, the question is, has it swung too far? Mm. That when, when, as you said, 4,000 people and their investors are splitting 70 billion in a low growth economy, doesn't that mean all the other companies who are traditionally bigger employees creating more middle class households? You know, doesn't that, doesn't that create a problem? And, and if we're going to do this, if we can't protect jobs, well, then we probably need to protect people and figure out a way to you know, provide more access to retraining or, or lower cost education, education costs here in the U.S. I don't know if it's the same in Australia. have just spiraled out of control. Mm. So there's, there's some, I think there's some difficult questions that we've got we've to wrestle with. And uh, some of these exogenous events around Russia and the cultural problems at Uber – are bringing these questions to the fore. Yeah, uh, you've touched on something there, which uh, I draw parallels with um, something that Seth Godin says, um, per the, his purple cow theory, where you've got to be remarkable. If you're riding, if you're driving down some country road and all you see is cows littered across um, the fields, but you see a purple cow, uh, that's remarkable. You stop, you take photos with it, you post selfies on Instagram, that kind of thing. Um, and he's saying today you need to be remarkable. And um, one of my previous guests, um, Alec Ross, uh, who was Barack Obama's advisor for innovation, um, he said that not only at a company level, but at an individual level, with so much automation um, going on, with companies managing to do so much more with so much less, there will be no room for mediocrity. He, he was talking about whether it was the accounting industry, whether it was legal services, whatever industry it was, you've got to be remarkable as mediocre probably won't have a place. And then the conversation went on into UBI and all that sort of stuff, which seems to pop up on almost every other business podcast episode. So we won't talk about that today, but it seems to ring true that mediocrity perhaps is losing its place in the world. So about 80% of people think they're an above average driver, mm -hmm. which is obviously impossible, right? Yeah. And most people, so they hear that the top 1% of income earners in America, so let's describe those people as remarkable, have captured 90% of the gains. And the reason why we haven't taken what I'll call aggressive action as a society against Adam said, there's something wrong there, we need to change tax policy, is that well more than 1% of people believe they're either that 1% or going to be. And it's one of the wonderful things about Western society is that people are naturally optimists. When you have one in a, the top 1% capturing 90% of the income gains, you know, you're setting yourself up for an economy where we have, in the U.S., 350 million serfs serving 3 million lords. Mm. And it's beginning economically, in terms of income disparity, to look like a little bit like a third world nation in the 70s or 80s, where the top 1% get to lead these extraordinary lives with 8 or 10 servants. And the question is, all right, that's where we're headed, and maybe that's what we want. Maybe we want this full-body contact Thunderdome like our hunger games like economy but we are headed there and are these companies doing anything wrong no the people we need to blame is the man in the mirror we are have elected officials that have decided that these companies can engage in tax avoidance that these companies should not be broken up even if they get to a point where they dominate 90 percent of a market and there's an argument there but we don't seem to want to talk about the downsides we don't want to seem to seem to acknowledge that outside of the one percent is going to be 99%, and chances are you and your kids are probably going to be part of that 99%. So, again, a lot of difficult questions, much easier to ask the questions than come up with the answers. 
But we're having, I think, for the first time in a while, a more serious conversation about it. Yeah, and that man in the mirror concept is something uh, Tim O'Reilly explores in his new book, um, What's the Future? And why it's up to us, um, because we can take this any which way we like, but there needs to be that collective sort of conversation and decision in terms of where we go with it, rather than just, let's just see what happens. I think that's right. You know, a lot of people say, well, it's the world we live in, that with processing power and global markets and network computing, there's just going to be a greater, greater income inequality. And I would argue the world is what we make of it. You know, there are, if you look at middle class households, their general prosperity is pretty, pretty tightly linked to minimum wage and the power of unions here in the U.S. And we have decided that minimum wage uh, vastly uh, underpaces inflation over the last 30 years. And unions have basically been kind of emasculated. In addition, capital gains are lower than current income. So in the U.S., what we've said is the money that money earns, the money is more sacred. The money is more, making money off money is more honorable than making money off of muscle. That your sweat gets taxed at a higher rate than, the, the, than your money, which is basically a transfer of wealth from the young and the poor, I think, to the old and the rich. Our second biggest tax deduction here is mortgage interest and again, for some reason, we bought into the notion that people that own homes should get a tax break. And it's been positioned as here in the U.S. is the American dream. If you talk to someone who owns a home or bought a home in 2007, they will not agree that owning a home is the American dream. Hmm. But the other way to look at it would be, you know, have we decided that we we're just going to have owners be subsidized by renters? And typically speaking, renters versus owners is, again, young, middle class and poor versus old and wealthier. So... We have consciously decided to exponentially increase these dynamics through our own tax policy and our approach because we all know the lottery, that the chances of winning are very slim, but we all think we're that guy or gal that's going to win. And so it's, um, it's created a very unusual dynamic for the first time in, I believe, in history in the U.S., a 30-year-old, on average, is now doing less well economically than his or her parents at 30. Yeah, I think uh, the stat is um, about 20 years ago, there was about 90% likelihood that you would make more than your parents, whereas today, I think that stat has fallen down to something like 40 to 50% likelihood. Um, so it's it's been slashed by half, and um, based on today's conversation, one can only assume that that number would continue to, uh, to, to dwindle. I think that's right. And these companies, when you look at when you look at how few people they employ, you look at the extraordinary amount of wealth they create spread across a much narrower base, you know, there's just no doubt about it. They're not, I would say we as elect, an electorate are the cause for this inequality, uh, but these companies are only taking advantage of the, the market we've set up. For-profit companies are there for profit. Mm -hmm. Their first priority is going to be their shareholders, regardless of their PR, regardless of their public perception. And it's our job to ensure that when markets fail, we have people kind of on the field to throw the yellow flag. I don't know what the analogy is in Australia mm -hmm. rules football and ensure that no, no one player gets to play by a different set of rules. Yeah. I mean, one thing uh, you keep, well, you've, you've brought it up a couple of times, which is that optimist illusion that many of us fall into where we think we'll be in the 1%. We think we'll have the best possible outcome. And that's just a you know, cognitive bias that we all, we all have. And um, on that sort of psychological side of things, um, with a few minutes to go, I wanted to explore um, what you thought about the way Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple design 
their products insofar as hooking people is concerned. Um, oftentimes they manipulate the fundamental emotional needs that we have and you talked about that at the start of the show when you said Facebook, it's about love, it's about connection and so on. Um, but these um, companies, I mean there's a book being written about it by a guy called Nia Eyal where he says there's a fundamental model and it's about creating internal triggers and external triggers, um, offering some sense of um, variability and reward um, and having people invest time and effort into these platforms so it's harder to move away from them. Um, and, you know, we talk about the benefits that these apps and platforms have brought into our lives, but at the same time, what are the consequences when, you know, you jump onto, say, the subway and everybody's got their head down looking at their phone, perhaps not even realizing why they're picking up their phone, they just do it because they've built this sort of habit and there's this dopamine release or dopamine release that happens every time they pick it up. Yeah. So you sound like an exceptionally well-read guy. There's a book called um, Irresistible by Adam Alter, who's a colleague of mine here. He's a behavioral uh, psychologist here at NYU and basically talks about kind of the tricks of the trade. And at a minimum, you know, probably the easiest way to describe it is the slot machine effect. A lot of, a lot of reward, a lot of opportunities for reward, gamification, but you know, I'll, I'll come out as someone who's addicted. Uh, I do videos and I check my videos every day to see how many thumbs up, the comments, <laughs> how many views. Mm -hmm. Whenever I tweet, I'm interested in seeing how many retweets or likes I get. I think any, most people on Facebook feel the same way on Instagram. And there is a, a, a dope ahead. And your kids with video games, when they're walking, their character's walking, they purposely make sure that the grass moves around them because they see some sort of reaction to their actions which gets addictive and the reward system and gamification so these companies are fantastic about it and a lot of people even said social media companies are the new tobacco that should be that should be required to make certain disclosures about the health risks and anyone who has young boys at home knows that when you try to take away the ipad mm -hmm. there's a moment where you feel like your young boy is thinking well you know memo to self must kill dad yeah these there's just there is definitely an addiction taking place here. A recent Pew study, which looks at teenagers, found that there's some very good things about social media, specifically less drunk driving and less uh, unwanted uh, pregnancies. Specifically, kids are having sex less. And the bad news is the reason why there's less drunk driving and less, less sex happening among teens is that they're in the rooms on Instagram and they're more depressed because they're seeing what their friends are doing without them. So depression is higher but teen pregnancy and drunk driving is lower. So some good things and some bad things, but there's some very negative attributes around um, social media, you know, again, around sort of this addictive behavior. And look, ice cream companies try and make their product addictive. The question is, at some point, are, are these companies required to do the same sort of research and the same sort of labeling and the same sort of disclosure is other businesses that have attributes that are that are addictive. Yeah. Well, look, we've been we've been venturing into uh, negative territory for the past thirty minutes or so, Scott. So we've got to end this on a very high note. What yes. can people do on an individual level to apply some of the lessons of the Big Four to progress their own uh, career aspirations um, or entrepreneurial aspirations? So I'm a, I'm a big fan of these four companies, and I think every every young person, and even if you're not young should really try and understand these four companies. And I set up the book almost as a textbook looking in a no mercy, no malice way at how these companies leveraging their appeal to our instincts, their incredible business models have become so successful. And I think there's 
attributes that can be sussed out of all of these companies that can be applied to your own business and even your own personal success and the way you approach your own brand. So I think it's important to really understand these companies too. I think it's important to engage with them. Um, you, you, you really should be in social media, if for anything else, to understand why they're so powerful. So set up an Instagram, a Facebook, a Twitter, a LinkedIn account and set goals and try and understand why these things work. Even if you decide after a year you're going to close your account, you need to understand the new, the new weapons of a corporate world. Mm -hmm. As far as individuals and in our role in all this, I think we have to adopt, you know, adopt the mindset that the world is what we make of it and elect officials that are going to hold these companies to the same standards that we hold the rest of business. Beautiful. Well, I think um, with that, our audience should definitely head out and get a copy of The Fall. Um, they can find that on Amazon. They can head over to thefallbook.com and they can connect with yourself on Twitter at Prof Galloway. That's G-A-L-L-O-W-A-Y. And we'll include all of that in the show notes for our listeners. Is there anywhere else people should go to find out a bit more about yourself and connect, Scott? The easiest way to find me is just to, just to Google me, Scott Galloway, and you'll get my faculty page, you'll get my Twitter account, and you'll get my email address, and uh, even get my cell phone, although please don't call me. But <laughs> I'm 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 shy. I'm frighteningly easy to track down. Perfect, perfect. Um, I think we all are in today's age, Scott. Um, any parting words of wisdom for our audience? Understand these companies. Hold our elected officials accountable and uh you know enjoy the ride we live in we live in interesting times that's a wrap if you like what you heard take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend venture backed was brought to you by sonic boom media a content agency helping vc firms generate better deal flow head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.